as we open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, give us the grace of your Holy Spirit that your word may be faithfully preached to the honor of your name and the edification of your church. Help us to receive your word with humility and obedience, the humility and obedience which it deserves. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. It's probably a passage that's familiar to many of us, but Matthew chapter 22, beginning our reading at verse 15 and reading through verse 22. So Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse 15 and reading through 22. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, Jesus, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, If you were here this morning, we talked about the importance of wisdom for untangling the sayings of the wise. Um, And this is one of those sayings of the wise that that are very difficult to untangle. Render unto God the things that are God's and unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's one of those propositions that's easy to state um, and much harder to apply. Um, I have at home, I forgot to bring it, boys and girls, I was going to bring it to show you after, Um, but I have a denarius from the time of Jesus, and it has the picture of the emperor. It's one of the coins that he would have been referring to, and you can see very clearly the image of the emperor and the inscription of the emperor, and you can imagine Jesus holding up a coin just like that and saying, who is this, and to to whom does this belong? Um, And it's a wonderful passage because they are marveled at his wisdom. You'll notice they have no response to him uh, because it's difficult at times to draw the line between how you think about those things. You can't at all dispute that that's true. You have to render to the Lord the things that are the Lord's. And you have to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's because Christ as king tells us to. Uh, But how do we do that? How does the church relate to the state? How does the state relate to the church? An easy topic. We'll be out of here real quick, right? Uh, these are, no, these are deep waters to try to get into, difficult topics to come across. And this was one of the concerns of the Belgian Confession, because one of the ways the Protestant Reformation was being painted at this time was a bunch of rebels against the government. Um, And what they wanted to be able to say to the government is we are not rebels against the government. We respect the government as being God's government. 
But we also recognize the limitations that God has put on government and some of the purposes for which God has given government. Um, and these things are difficult to tease out, just as it can be difficult to tease out what does, where do the things of Caesar stop and the things of the Lord apply, how do we see these relations. And the Belgian Confession wants to talk about that. Uh, to help us see our, what is our confession of faith, to recognize those things that are our basic commitments as a people of God, uh, but also recognizing that that does also leave us some room for disagreement as these are thorny issues and difficult topics. And so we want to think about it together um, as we remember what we've looked at about God's government um, as it relates to His organization, His principle of ruling the world. Uh, well, this isn't the first time we've talked about this topic, I hope that hope you remember that, um, that we've talked about the government before, and one of the things that we've said is the reason God instituted governments is so that sin would not run amok in the world, um, so this world would not be left lawless. Uh, God wants certain laws and policies to operate in the world so that justice is promoted and wickedness is restrained. That's one of the ways God exercises His common grace in the world. We call it common because it's common to all. Uh, Jesus talks about that kind of common goodness to the world in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There's a common goodness that God gives to everyone in the world. Governments are an example of that common goodness. That He has not left sin to run amok in the world, but has established an institution whereby it might be put in check. So that lawlessness will be checked and goodness will be promoted. Um, the, the scenes we see coming out of Afghanistan remind us of what can happen when there is no good government. Um, the, the terrible situation that can be there, the warring powers, the danger that's abroad. Um, that without government running and protecting us from the evil of this world, there would be sin running amok. God has instituted governments to exercise this restraining function in the world. That's what God's common grace does as God is governing this world. Uh, he's restraining things from happening in the world. And he's given the governments both the authority and the power to carry out this function. He's given them the sword into their hand so they might carry out this function. And what the Belgian Confession is reflecting on in the part we want to think about this evening is God not only gives it a restraining function for the whole world, but also has instituted the government that it might particularly restrain evil so that the church might do its work in the world. Because the necessity of the church being able to do its work in the world is much more necessary for the world. Because common grace institutions like the government can restrain evil, it can't renew the world. Um, only God's special grace, only His church can really send forth His word, which is God's ability to renew the world. And so as we think of the government functioning, it functions in a general sense to restrain evil, but also God has established it in a particular way so the church might have the ability to do its work in the world. 
We see something of that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2, where, where Timothy urges all people, or Paul urges all people, to pray for the governing authorities. And why is, why is the reason for that? First, then, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So that the church can do its renewing work in the world. Not the common grace that can only restrain evil, but shed forth that special grace that has the ability to make sinners live. To actually change hearts and minds and lives. Some, sometimes well-meaning government officials will say, we're out to change hearts and minds. Uh, well, governments don't do a good job of changing hearts and minds. That's not their function. Um, the church has been given in the world to send forth the word of God that is the power of salvation, Christ crucified. That has the power to renew. That has the power to make people new. That's what God is doing in the world by the church. He's making things new. He's renewing men and women in the image of Christ. He's renewing and sanctifying people so that we might exert a holy influence in this world. Um, he's cul- and it will culminate, that renewing work will culminate in the recreation of the world. When all things will be made new and there's a world in which only righteousness dwells, that will be the remaking of this world. Uh, that's the purpose the church has in this world. They're both manifestations of the kingship of Christ. Christ as king is restraining wickedness in the world by his common grace. And Christ as king is building his kingdom by special grace in renewing the lives of sinners and bringing people into his kingdom from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so the question then has always been, how do these two institutions relate to one another? How do we think about this relationship? Belgian Confession, Article 36, talks about the civil government and says, being called in this manner to contribute to the advancement of a society that is pleasing to God, the civil rulers have the task subject to God's law of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. We want to ask the question, what does that mean? How should that look in the world? And to really come to an understanding of that, we have to understand something of the history of the relationship between the church and the government to see how these things have changed over the years and how we try to think about these things. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Governments keep changing. And how governments relate to the state, relate to the church, have keep changing over the centuries. And we have to think about some of these things. Uh, so we want to think about those things and recognize um, that we are in deep waters. Uh, these are difficult questions. These are questions where people are going to have differences of opinion uh, because it's a difficult thing to, sh- to understand when the things of Caesar end, when the things of God begin, where those lines ought to be drawn. And so we're going to admit right out of the, right out of the gate it's a difficult question. Uh, but I do think the Belgian Confession helps to guide us through what some of Scripture has to say about how these two institutions ought to relate to one another. But we do have to understand something of the, the history that the church has had with the state. Of course, when the, when the church first started under 
the, the institution of Jesus Christ sending his apostles into the world, we know that the state made religion illegal. The state was an active opposition, inactive opposition of the work of the church. Uh, they were in clear opposition to each other. Um, and over time, that opposition suddenly radically changed. Um, when you had a Christian emperor embrace Christianity uh, in the early 300s AD and, and issued an edict that actually there would be no more persecution of the church and that the church would become the, the Christianity would become the official religion of the empire. That radically changed things. Uh, the church had been at war with the state, or more properly, the state had been at war with the church, and suddenly you had an emperor who was not only embracing the church, but who was calling councils of the church to come. And we can read the history of the church and, and think about the, the radical change that happened when people came to that first council of Nicaea in 325, some of whom still bore the marks of imperial persecution, who had had eyes put out by the Roman government who had been in other ways tortured and maimed by the Roman government, are now being called by the Roman emperor to come and hold a council. The emperor is calling them brothers in the Lord. And, and you think about what a radical change that makes for Christianity to go from being on the outside of the state to now being countenanced by the state. Um, and that's the world in which so much of the church lived for so long. Um, that continues all the way through the ancient church, through the Middle, middle Ages, that's the, the world in which they live, the church and the state operating together. That's the world in which all of the reformers lived, in a, in a Christianized world, where the church and the state were both closely connected, and usually the state established some form of Christianity everywhere you were. Um, so there were, there were Roman Catholic nations, there were Lutheran nations, there were Reformed nations, uh, and, and every government would sort of set the religion. And there was this real feeling that unless we all share the same religion, we won't really have the same loyalties. This is a way of being a common people. And it was well thought that the government should establish religion, should promote a certain kind of religion, should punish those who didn't believe that kind of religion. Um, and that was just very much the world in which they operated a state-established religion. Um, and there was always in that period then, too, a vying for power between the church and the state. Both were seen as important, um, and the church and the state were competing for influence. Uh, but over time, it became clear that the state would be dominant over the church, uh, especially in the Reformation with different branches of Christianity. There wasn't a monolithic church anymore. Um, and different regions had different religions, and it became clear that the state has dominion. Um, and then the questions began to be asked, do we really want the state punishing religion? Is that the reason for which the Lord has given the sword into the hands of the state? Is, is that how the kingdom of Jesus Christ is built as we see that spiritual kingdom being presented to us in, in God's word? Is it built by dominion? Is it built by the sword? Is it built by compulsion? Um, or is it built by preaching the good news of the gospel and, and hearers being called to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and live? Um, do we want the state punishing heresy? 
Do we want the state deciding what true religion is and what it's not? And that's why the Reformed churches, as history went on, changed what was in the Belgic Confession. I don't know if you noticed that there was an asterisk in part of what we read as our confession, and there was a little footnote about what the confession used to read. Um, And the Reformed churches at the turn of the century in the 1800s, 1900s, said, this this doesn't actually represent what God's Word teaches. Um, This is not what God has established the state to do. They each have a sphere that's been entrusted to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. They each have an area of responsibility that has been given to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the state is to have that restraining function that we talked about. The church is to have that renewing function. And that nothing is accomplished when one institution invades the province of another. Right? Everyone knows that that is bad, that that doesn't work. That's exactly what the Pharisees were trying to do to Jesus, right? Make the, make the church interfere with the state, and then we can sick the Romans on you. Or make the state, sub, or, or make these things not subject at all to the state, and then we'll sick the religious authorities on you. But either way, we're going to get the church or the state to get you. How is he going to get out of this? And Jesus recognizes the truth that his father has set up areas of authority and that where the state has authority, that authority is to be respected. But where the state does not have authority, God has authority. God's word has authority. God's king has authority. And Jesus very deftly points out to them, my father has established what the church will do and what the state will do. And just as it is not for us to invade the province of Caesar if God has established Caesar on his throne. Neither is it for Caesar to invade the things that are God's. You see how that recognizes immediately the truth of the matter and is cause for everyone who hears Jesus say those wise things to marvel and why it leaves them nothing to say. Because once you say... The Lord has established the government to be the government, but he has also established his church to be his church, and one ought not to interfere with the other. There's really no arguing with that. And we need to do the same. We need to acknowledge that God has set forth both. Neither is to invade the province of the other. Um, The fall has made government necessary, But that hasn't changed the fact that the world is still operating under God's dominion. The fall has altered the creation, but doesn't change the fact that it is still God's creation. And he is working to renew it uh, by his spirit. I like how Herman Herman Bovink reflected on this point. He said, to regain that fallen world, God introduced the forces of grace into his creation. This grace is distributed in a twofold form as a common grace with a view towards restraining and a special grace with a view toward renewing. Both have their unity in Christ, the king of the realm of power and grace. Both are directed against sin. Both ensure the connectedness between creation and recreation. 
Neither has the world been left to itself after the fall, nor deprived of all grace, but it is sustained and spared by common grace, guided and preserved for special grace in Christ. Christ, even now, is prophet, priest, and king. And by his word and spirit, he persuasively impacts the entire world. Um, It's a wonderful way of thinking about how Christ is governing his world. He's governing his world through the governments he's established to restrain wickedness. But he's also using that restraint to guide and preserve the world for his special grace. To open the order for that. Um, It's one of the reasons that Paul can say Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time at just the right time. And it also corresponded to the Pax Romana that existed in the world where the Roman peace had been established in the world. So there was a freedom to travel throughout the Western world because it was under the dominion of Rome. There was a freedom of ability to operate in that region that wouldn't have been possible if it was all fallen to infighting. There was, a, there was a way God was working in the world, using the government to open the door for His grace to go forward. And that's one of the fundamental things we always want to remember when we think about the church and the state. The state is not a godless organization. The state is not free on its own. The state is under the dominion of Christ the King, and He's moving it, and He's making opportunity for His church to go forward. That's why we should never despair as the people of God, because God is doing that even in some of the most unlikely places. Um, Some of the, the the richest stories that we read in the Bible in, say, the book of Daniel are stories of occupation. Um, of stories of a guy who's high on his own glory and pride, who's afflicted God's people and thought it's a measure of his own greatness. Um, And how his kingdom rose and fell, talking about Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and Daniel being there, and Daniel was still there. And when the next Babylonian king rose and fell, Daniel was still there. And when that empire fell, Daniel was still there. Um, God had opened the door for the grace and, the, and His special word to go forward, even in the midst of that kind of government. Uh, Paul writes to a Roman church that's in Rome, despite Nero being in Rome. Um, this is not at all to say government is not important, but it is to say Christ's people should never despair because Christ is the king of governments. He raises them up and He puts them down at His will. But he's always working through what's happening to open doors for the gospel. To see to it that his special grace goes forward in the world where he wants it to go, when he wants it to go, to whom he wants it to go. And that's why we've always said one of the duties of the state is to see to it that they do not interfere with the work of the king. Um, Now again, how they do that it can be the subject of great debate um, and has been throughout the centuries. But that is the duty of the state. The civil rulers have the task, subject to God's law, of removing excuse me, every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and to every aspect of divine worship. 
I mean, how is the government to do that? Well, by preserving the church's freedom to act within the sphere that God has given them. Um, because they are God's governments, they can't be neutral towards the things of the Lord. Uh, we, we never want to say the state just has a neutral function in the world. No, they always have a function to be God's ministers in the world. A restraining function on evil and to promote what's good. They need to get out of the way of the church to do its work. That's one of the principles of government. They don't exist for themselves alone. They exist that the gospel of Jesus Christ may have free course. Um, it's duty-bound, the state is duty-bound to do what God's word has commanded it to do. Right? It must act subject to God's law. Uh, meaning you can't act outside of what God has called you to do. Um, you have to act according to God's law without doing anything to exercise absolute tyranny. You see how there's all these conditions put upon how the government is to do that. But it's not an easy question always to answer where those lines lie. Um, think about what another Reformed theologian said here. The state must draw a boundary line between sin and crime according to the demand of the gospel and in keeping with the guidance of divine providence in the history of nations. These lines do not coincide with those between the two tables of the law, for many sins against the second table fall outside the jurisdiction of the government, and many others against the first table, like perjury and Sabbath-breaking, are also punishable by a Christian government. Uh, so here he's, he's perfectly okay with the government punishing Sabbath-breaking. Um, and so you can see how there can be disagreement over how that law is to be applied. But what most Reformed Christians have agreed on, the primary duty of the, of the government as it relates to religion is this, to leave the conscience alone to be free to worship so that you don't get in the business of interfering with what God has called his people to do. How exactly that's to be done is left as more of an open question. Um, because the purpose of our confession is to be a common confession to which all Christians can say, this is the fundamental commitment of the Bible and we don't want to commit ourselves to anything where the Bible doesn't speak clearly that we have to have this commitment. We want to leave room for Christians to disagree along biblical lines so that no one point of view is necessarily read out confessionally. And this was the challenge the Reformed churches had when they said, I'm, I don't think we want the government's punishing heresy. Right? And you can see why in the 1800s, 1900s, they would start to think that as totalitarian regimes began to rise in Europe, you start looking at some of these governments and saying, I'm not sure this is, I'm not sure we want this guy deciding what's heresy and punishing it. Is this really a biblical concept? And how can we come to an agreement that would encapsulate what we can all agree on and not read any Christian out? Can we agree on what the state must do? Yes, the state must do what God has called it to do. They should do it in order that the word of God may have free course, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ may make progress and every anti-Christian power may be resisted. But while doing it, the state must not exceed the limits of what God has called them to do, whether in terms of authority or scope or means. 
So on the one hand, we say they should do all of those things, but what should they not do? They should do this while completely refraining from every tendency toward exercising absolute authority and while functioning in the sphere entrusted to them with with the means belonging to them. You see how that's meant to establish Christian principles Uh, but not specify them so clearly that it will read people out. Because there are some people who will disagree on what is the realm of the government and when they've exceeded their authority. Um, You know, our own own experience with COVID is probably a good example of that. Um, There were people who would say, you've got to keep the churches open because for the government to close the churches is to exceed their authority. They don't have the authority to close churches. Um, there are other people that said, but God's word also says to love your neighbor, and this is a way we can love our neighbor and seek to do them good. Now, who's right? Do we want to make this a confessional issue so that we read certain of our brothers and sisters who might disagree with us out of the church by making it a confessional issue? You see, no, the Belgian Confession wants to say we may agree broadly on what are the duties, but it may be we may have differences of opinion on how to articulate them. And that's always been the difficulty the church has faced. The Christian Reformed Church, when thinking about how do we redo Article 36 of the Confession in light of what we know is not true, tried to be a little more specific and kept finding themselves you know, running into a, to a group of people who would say, you know, if you do that, then I'm out. I'm, I'm read out of this if we change the Belgian Confession to say that. And one historian of the church in 1946 said, it must be said there is no one agreed upon opinion in reform circles as to what the precise duty of the state with reference to the first table of the law may be, nor as to what the reciprocal obligations of the church and state are. And that is reason enough why it is unwise at this time to try to incorporate any deliverance touching on these matters in our confession, which should be the expression of of our common faith. And so it's always the duty of the confession to say, here are the guardrails we are putting on our confession. Beyond this, you can't step. The the government at at minimum has these duties. But we can't be any more specific about that or we will run into areas where we disagree and end up saying that certain people can't be part of the church. And we don't want to do that because we recognize it can be a difficult business to draw that line. To say these are the things of Caesar's and not the things of God. Or these are the things of God and not the things of Caesar. What do we want? We want a confession that is true and biblical, but broad enough to encapsulate many who have to work through these difficult questions. And there I think we see the wisdom of the confession here. Um, to draw those important lines. This is what the state must do. This is what the state must not do. But we might, if we tried to tease it out in any more specificity, we might reach a place where we can't agree. And these are not the fundamentals of the faith over which God's people ought to disagree. And I think there's a wisdom here. Um, A wisdom not only in how it's put together, but how it teaches us to think about these questions that we would proceed with a certain amount of charity towards people with whom we disagree. To recognize there's no easy way to relate some of these questions. 
so that we should be charitable to one another when we disagree. And we should exercise caution when opining about these difficult issues. Right? All of us with these difficult issues. And that's, I think, the value of the confession on this particular point. How does the church relate to the state? How does the state relate to the church? It is acknowledging that biblical truth that the state has a responsibility not to interfere with the Word of God. Not to interfere with the ministry of Christ in this world. That civil rulers do have the task subject to God's law of removing every obstacle to the preaching of the gospel and every aspect of divine worship. The calling of the magistrate is to restrain evil so that the purpose of the church might be accomplished. Uh, to leave us free course. And God has established that common grace institution to restrain evil so that the important special renewing work of the church might be done in the world. Because common grace institutions can't change the world. They can really only restrain wickedness in the world. What is the only institution that can really change the world? That's the church with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which can make dead people live and can make those who hate God and their neighbor, those who love God and their neighbor. Uh, that's what the church has to be able to do in the world. And that's why I love what Herman Bobbing said. The world has not been left to itself. It's not been deprived of all grace. In fact, God has poured out His grace, both His common grace and His special grace. But it is sustained and spared by common grace and guided and preserved for special grace. Um, that's the function that the church ought to have in the state and in the world. And it's a wonderful reminder to us of the wisdom with which God rules the world. Um, ruling in both of those ways by His grace. So that both of those important tasks are accomplished. So we do believe in a separation of the church and state. They both have their duties that have been entrusted to them by God. And one should not interfere with the other. But we also believe in the cooperation, in a sense, of the church and the state. Because when the church does its work, it's a tremendous benefit to the state. Because what does the church produce in a state? It produces citizens who love the Lord Jesus Christ and who love their neighbor. Who actually seek to lay down their lives for their fellow citizens. Who actually seek to be good citizens, not just because they fear the state, but because they fear the Lord. It's a tremendous blessing in a country uh, where we are left free to worship the Lord. Where the church is left free to do its work. Whereby the Holy Spirit's power lives are changed. Those people are the most zealous for the truth, for justice, for righteousness, for equity. Um, that's the glory of when the, the church is able to do its work in a country. It produces people who are zealous for good things and who do good work before the Lord. That's why it's interesting, an American historian said the fanatic for Calvinism was a fanatic for liberty. For in the moral warfare for freedom, his creed was part of his army and his most faithful ally in the battle. 
Um, they recognized that our religion had a big influence on our world. And the same is true when the state does its work. It's a tremendous blessing to benefit to the church. We can gather here this evening without fear that the government is coming for us. We know that that might not always be the case, but it is the case today. In fact, if someone came here to try to interrupt our service, we would call the government to come and restore order and trust that they would. That's a blessing. It's a blessing to live in a world like that. We have many Christian brothers and sisters that don't enjoy that world at all. Um, it, it's a wonderful benefit when the state does its work. When the state does its work of restraining evil and stays in its lane, stays out of the business of interfering with the church. And we have to think of the blessing of the government despite its many difficulties, despite its many failings, and continue to pray that the Lord would help us to think through these things. I recognize we've only scratched the surface of some of these things, and maybe I've raised more questions than I've answered by saying the state has to do some things, but it must not do other things and not been specific, but this has been a perennially difficult question. Uh, let me end by a quote from J.C. Ryle, who is commenting on this passage from Matthew 22. He writes, the principle laid down in these well-known words, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, is one of deep importance. There is one obedience owing by every Christian to the civil government under which he lives in all matters which are temporal and not purely spiritual. He may not approve of every requirement of that civil government, but he must submit. He must give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There is another obedience which the Christian owes to the God of the Bible in all matters which are purely spiritual. No temporal loss, no civil disability, no displeasure of the powers that be must ever tempt him to do things which the Scripture plainly forbids. His position may be very trying. He may have to suffer, suffer much for his conscience' sake, but he must never fly in the face of unmistakable requirements of Scripture. If Caesar coins a new gospel, he is not to be obeyed. We must give to God the things that are God's. The subject, unquestionably, is one of great difficulty and delicacy. It is certain that the church must not swallow up the state. It is no less certain that the state must not swallow up the church. On no point, perhaps, have conscientious men been so much tried. On no point have good men disagreed so much as in solving the problem where the things of Caesar end and the things of God begin. The civil power on the one side has often encroached terribly on the rights of conscience. Spiritual power on the other side has often pushed its claims to an extravagant extent. In order to have a right judgment in all questions of this kind, every true Christian should constantly pray for wisdom from above. The man whose eye is single and who daily seeks for grace and practical common sense will never be allowed greatly to err. I think that's really wise. These are difficult, delicate questions. Um, and we, we live in a world that always wants the simple answer to difficult, delicate questions. Uh, we live in a world that always wants to treat difficult and delicate things, complicated things, as if they're simple and easy. And in our particular generation, this world loves 
the fallacy of the false choice. It's this or it's that. And sometimes it's not this or that. Sometimes these things are difficult to understand. So we must hold up the, the requirements, the clear requirements that God has given the state, the things they must do and the things they must not do. But we recognize those as guardrails, and when we meet as Christians together in the middle, I hope we'll, we'll recognize the difficulty, have the, the, the humility to recognize that these are difficult, delicate questions, and to be willing to exercise charity and extend charity to those who might not entirely agree with how we see things. We might recognize that it takes the wisdom of Christ to know perfectly where Caesar's things end and the things of God begin, or where the things of God end and the things of Caesar begin. May we pray that God would give us that grace and spirit of humility so that we not allow those things to be, to be, to be divisive in the midst of this community that God is renewing by his spirit, where he has knitted us together as brothers and sisters, made us this family in this place, as a work of that renewing grace uh, so that we might come to these questions with the necessary humility and plead for God's grace to understand them aright. And may God give us the grace and the help of his Holy Spirit that we might always render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we know that these are difficult and imperfect things in our hearts and minds because we live in a world that is so fractured and broken that governments are necessary because of the fallen condition of the world. The world is not perfect and the governments are not perfect. We thank you that we have your word to tell us what governments ought to do, and we thank you for the ways in which our government leaves us free to act according to our conscience, and we are thankful for the freedom that we have to gather here this evening and to worship and to praise your name. We pray for our brothers and sisters that do not enjoy that same freedom and that you would in your time grant to them the same grace that you've given to us to have the freedom to worship and the freedom from affliction. Remind them in their suffering that you are the God who sets up governments and who can tear them down and that you are working even in the, in the most oppressive of governments you are still working by your kingdom of special grace to make sure the kingdom of Christ goes forward in the world. And help us, no matter what condition under which we live, not to be a despairing people. Uh, for if the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's building work, then certainly no government of men can resist his authority. And so, Lord, we pray you would fill us with hope for the work of Christ in the world, for the renewing work of the church, and that the renewing work of the church might go forward facilitated by the state so that we might have that function in the world which is good for this world and means glory in the next. Help us, we pray, to understand these things aright. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.